we are in a race. The race is against time. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job, miserable and angry and bitter. Welcome to Sound Conversations. Welcome to Sound Conversations podcast. I have the pleasure to um, share with you a very unique story from one of the most iconic breweries and brewers in the greater Seattle area, and some people may say the Northwest, Matt Linscombe. Matt, thank you for coming to the show. Sure. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. It's always fun to tell a good story. <laughs> well, we are, uh, we are currently at Fremont Brewing Company uh, headquarters in Fremont, Washington, and I'd like to start our story, or your story, with uh, why Fremont, and hmm. out of all the places in the world. Right, good question. Uh, well, Fremont's the center of the universe, so that makes it really easy to locate. I thought that was a smart place for a business. Um, I had lived here, and I lived, my, my wife and I, our family, uh, we live not too far from Fremont, um, so I had lived in the area uh, for a long time, and Ever since I first moved to Seattle about 24 years ago in the early 90s, uh, I became associated with the Fremont business community, the artists and the shipbuilders and the metal workers, uh, and the community and the small businesses. The community just captivated me. Um, this is a really dynamic place to run a business. It's not just all you know, uh, industry. It's not all art. It's not all. Um, retail stores it's really a mix of all three of those and then throw in tech uh, which didn't exist in Fremont at the time uh, except for Adobe and then all the residential stuff and it's a really dynamic place to run a business um, challenging too when you run a manufacturing business like we do um, but that's fun yeah makes it uh, makes every day uh, something new and challenging now, your brewery started in 2008. I think your incorporation was in 2008, and mm -hmm. I believe your first uh, beer was sold in 2009, August? 2009, yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, previously, you were in uh, law uh, yes. practice, yes. and you have mentioned in other interviews that, uh, the, the step that you took, which I think is something that's fascinating for a lot of people out there, and I was hoping that we can cover it in some detail, mm -hmm. um, you know, going away from a position where you have a stable income, you've got mm -hmm. health insurance, you have uh, a book of business, to none of those things mm -hmm. and setting up your, your own shingle. Please, please walk us through that experience and, and the strength that it takes to uh, pull it off. It definitely is subjective how you characterize that decision. Uh, foolishness, strength, um, vision, or complete uh, lack of understanding of what you're putting your family through. Uh, it really, really depends on who you ask at the time. Yeah, not that many people thought that was a good decision. So I think you're, you hit on uh, definitely an Im important aspect of that time for the creation of Fremont Elite. You have to throw in at the same time the context for the 2007, 2008 into nine period. That's a good Our point. world economy lost about half of its value. Uh, we lost Washington Mutual. We were losing auto companies all over the country. 
manufacturing industry was being destroyed. The financial industry was being destroyed. The real estate industry was gone. Everyone's home infl- uh, prices dropped out to the bottom. Um, and, you know, 2007 was the bottom of that. So uh, we had 11% unemployment in Washington State. Wow. Um, it was rough. It was a really rough time, um, as we all hopefully remember. But to me, that was part of the excitement um, or absolute foolishness um, to leave all that security and jump into business. But, you know, there's kind of that concept when everyone's rushing out. That's when the most opportunity is for those who rush in. Um, it was that inverse logic <laughs> I used. Uh, luckily, it seemed to pay off. But um, at the time, it certainly wasn't great. Uh, couldn't get money. Couldn't get. There were no lenders. Yeah. There were people. Uh, there were very few investors, and certainly beer hadn't taken off at that point to the point way it is now. Nobody was investing in a brewery to mm-hmm. make money. It was you invest in a brewery as a vision, um, as a community, as something um, a community to be a part of. Uh, and because you're just passionate about beer, um, it's a very different economy today. But um, yeah, it was a it was a really fun time, honestly, to start a business. So you mentioned something that I, I'd like to go into a little bit more depth. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that uh, you know during this challenging, tumultuous economic time where people are pulling out, you mm-hmm. pulled in. Yeah. Where does that come from? Is that is that a f- is that something that you learned from your family, from a mentor? Uh, I think reading way too many fantasy <laughs> novels as a kid, you know, like just charge in uh, that being a romantic, that ideal of you know wanting to kind of run against the tide a little bit. Um, I think being a bit bit of a contrarian is part of it. Um, but really, most of all, that was a vagary of time. It wasn't why I decided to start the brewery because you know our economy was collapsing. Yeah, <laughs> um, that just happened to be going on at the same time and. In business, you know, you look at whatever your situation is given that current day and try to turn it to your advantage. So to me, I turned, I thought that was an advantageous thing for the brewery. But, you know, the reality is I had no choice. It either was that or it completely sucked that I had no credit card. I couldn't get a credit card. Um, there were no banks. There was no institutional lending. I sold 40% of my company oh, wow. to get a couple hundred grand to build this brewery. Um, it's not a necessarily a good thing. I just made it into a virtue because... Yeah, that I'd otherwise I'd just be angry. Yeah, that I had to sell forty percent of my company to investors who I love. They're yeah. great investors, right. but to get a couple hundred grand, that's today people who want to start a brewery, they're starting off with a million, million five with wow. no experience, professional or otherwise, uh, or even brewing experience. Um, and we see it all around. Folks are running breweries that really have no idea what they're doing, either professionally as brewers or as business people. As business people. Yeah. Um, so at the time, yeah, I, I, I thought it was fun be just because I think you have to be a bit of a contrarian to start a business anyway. And just the concept of proving this landscape to be something advantageous instead of something that was crushingly bad, which it seemed all around. Uh, that was a fun challenge. It was a fun challenge. <laughs> so year one, this is mm-hmm. 2008, 2009. Yeah. Uh, you uh, started your, your business. Yep. You set up your company. Um, when you started to hire people, uh, how was mm. how was that process like? It was it. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing there's not a lot of folks out there that have a brewery, at least at the time, had a brewery experience. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there are brewers, um, okay. absolutely, but there are very few here. 
at the time, I couldn't afford to, uh, you know, recruit a bunch of folks like we do now um, from all over the country. So uh, my first hire actually was precipitated by um, blowing up my back. I ended oh. up destroying my back. While I built the brewery. I blew up my back. Uh, I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit. Oh, I wow. couldn't really sleep. It was a nasty nine-month period of my oh life. My gosh. Um, so I had to hire somebody because I could no longer move. Second hire, uh, Matt Lincoln, who's now mm-hmm. a director of brewing operations and now a brewery owner. Matt came from Goose Island in Chicago. Oh, yeah. And I put it, ads out and whatnot, and he contacted me through awesome. one of the websites. Now, um, was Matt um, coming to Seattle because of the brewery, or was it... Um he was coming. To, he was Seattle. moving with his now wife. Uh, Seattle was where they wanted to move moved. to return to. They had yeah. been here for or for a period in their lives and wanted to come back. Um, so yeah, and cool. he was looking for a brewing job because he was a brewer. That's perfect timing. Yeah. and it was great timing. Very fortunate. So, yeah, um, yeah, and that's nine years ago with yeah. Matt. Time flies, huh? Yeah, it does. <laughs> when you're having fun, at least. Uh huh. Yes. <laughs> um, or you're working too hard that you don't really notice. <laughs> Tell me about your your period of going back to college. So you, um, as a young adult, you were uh, an environmental activist, I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you spent a lot of time and, and energy um, helping people understand the challenges that we have, uh, that we're facing as a community. And then something happened, and you decided you wanted to go back to school. So yeah, I spent part of the 80s, 90s, um, and into the 90s, all through the 90s, actually, uh, Working for groups from Greenpeace to Sierra Club. Here it's the Washington Wilderness Coalition. It's now called Washington Wild. Um, and then serving on boards from Washington Conservation Voters and all over the country, from Alaska to Massachusetts to Arizona, et cetera. And specifically my work, um, the majority of the work that I did on environmental issues as a community organizer was uh, around ancient forest or taking roadless areas and packaging them and moving them into uh, the Big W 1965 Wilderness Act. So uh, that transition from being a community activist into being an attorney um, Mm. was partly helped uh, along by uh, waking up one day as I approached 30 and realizing that all my peers uh, lived better lives, didn't seem to be having such a hard time um, financially as I was. Mm. And I realized, well, either these people don't need this income because mm-hmm. uh, they're independently wealthy or they have a spouse or somebody who's um, you know, the main income uh, earner. And I was definitely not my situation uh, in either of those circumstances. Um, and I realized I had to actually, I couldn't afford to be an environmental activist anymore because oh, wow. um, I was supporting myself and I wanted to support a family and, and own a home and whatnot. Um, and it, though it was a privilege to work in the nonprofit world, uh, it is definitely not a place for folks who are fully independent, mm. um, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, it's a very, very, very difficult place to, to make a living. But yeah. um, that was honestly what pushed me out. Uh, the other part was I was actually getting a little bit bitter. Mm. Um, you can, you know, after 10 plus years of fighting, uh, I wanted to focus on something that was. Um, that had less conflict in its day-to-day work. Um, it was star- I was starting to become bitter, and I was starting to become resentful. Um, there was a great guy, former director of Greenpeace, my old boss, Lou Cruz, who uh, gave me some great advice a long time ago. He said, look, um, what the environmental movement needs are people with passion. Uh, we don't need martyrs. Martyrs don't help anybody except themselves. 
So if you think that you know, you're getting to that point where you're bitter and you mm. think that you're a critical piece of this machine, um, you're really not, and you're really not helping anybody you should leave. Uh, I found that to be wonderful advice because it allowed me to um, maintain a spark uh, and want to come back and do more envi environmental work in the future. So um, part of that was uh, I got to work with Paul Schell. Um, we worked, I ran his field campaign, his media campaign. We elected Paul as mayor. Um, I thought he served a great four years. Uh, he was an amazing man to, um, to know, an amazing man to work for. Um, and that exposed me working with Paul, and then I went to work in the administration. Um, uh, exposed me to a whole world I just didn't know existed, um, this world of the larger Seattle business community. Uh, and I was fascinated. And um, to me, going back to school and getting a law degree was a way to engage in that business community. So I ended up getting into the UW and University of Washington Law School. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, took a couple months off, traveled for three months throughout Australia. Really? Built sailboats and sailed up the coast You're and kidding. all over scuba diving with phenomenal um, Indonesians all throughout Indonesia for months. And, and then came back. Tell, tell me a yeah. little bit more about your – so it sounds like a sabbatical, a three-month sabbatical maybe, take a little time off yeah. before yeah. getting started again. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, so how did you go through the process of picking the countries you wanted to visit? Uh, my best friend uh, lived in Sydney at the time. Okay. Um, and uh, it was – he lived on Bondi Beach. Uh, so if you know Sydney and if you know Australia, you know Sydney, you know Bondi. It's a great place to be, especially as a young person. Uh, it's just a fun, fun place. Uh, so went down to stay with Dave uh, and ended up getting involved in the sailing community and rebuilding some boats that wow. were destroyed in the um, Sydney to Hobart race, a big race, big sailing race, uh, and sailed up the coast. Very cool. And then just kept going from there, basically. I'm a scuba diver, so I wanted oh, to go nice. to um, – and Sulawesi is the first uh, marine park, um, national marine park part of a World Heritage Site program run by the UN. Mm. Uh, Sulawesi is the first one, the Marine Reserve Park in Indonesia. Uh, it's just a gorgeous site. Um, it's, well, it was then, uh, untouched, stunning, brilliant um, marine life. Oh, very so cool. that was my ultimate destination. Nice. So ended up getting there and hanging out for quite a bit. Now, when you were there, did you recall from memory any, any breweries or any beers that you tried out that may have had some inspiration to today's uh, uh, well yeah, not necessarily okay. breweries um i mean southeast asia is like most of the world where you have a lager mm -hmm. it's the same lager you can drink it there's some variances but not really so no it's just lager yeah uh, <laughs> but the one <laughs> a fine lager um i <laughs> certainly enjoyed quite a few um but uh the, uh, actually the thing that stood out for me was when i was in australia uh, and it stood up for me on my honeymoon, too. My wife and I, part of where we went was into the southern part of New Zealand. Um, the brown ales. It's a really, oh. really strong part of their culture. Um, and I hadn't really been exposed to brown ales. So I fell in love with it. Um, and our bonfire, our winter ale, the bonfire brown ale, is a direct result of that <laughs> fascination with brown ales. That's terrific so, to yeah. hear because that's actually one of my favorite in your lineup of beers. Oh, uh, you have great yeah. taste. <laughs> it's Thanks. a fun one. Yeah. Um, Going back to your your time as an activist, and uh, and I, I know that your brewery um, it, it 
is impacted, I'm sure, through that experience and through that time. Mm-hmm. Can you share with our listeners how you've uh, set up your business to be mindful of, of the impact that it has on the community, on the environment? Um, I think, uh, f- well, for us, we baked a couple of principles into the business from day one. The f- uh, you can think about them as the sustainability principles. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in uh, economics, was my major, um, and I uh, I was very clear about the first principle of sustainability, which is profitability. Hmm. Um, everyone likes to talk about all the other much more you know interesting things from yeah. a, you know environmental perspective, but it's all just talk unless you're profitable. So you've got to have a strong business. Um, that's the number one principle of sustainability. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously where we started. Moving from there, um, the two main categories of sustainability where we take care of our uh, employees and we take care of our community. And each of those have a lot of things underneath them. But um, part of the commitment to taking care of our uh, our employees was to offer uh, higher than industry wages. Our industry in particular, I think, offers very low wages. Mm. Um, So that was baked in from day one is that we will um, push those boundaries and we will overpay Nice. With, you know, relative to our industry. Um, and hopefully act as a correcting mechanism for anybody who, you know, shares the same values. And they see, and maybe market pressure a little bit by pushing that line a little bit higher and higher. Um, so people in um, manufacturing and, and brewing can hopefully collectively have higher wages. Um, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also is the benefits. I'm very much committed to um, 100% health care. So we paid 100% health care until fairly recently. Um, now we pay 90, uh, 90%. We realized that people used our health care, the health, their health care more, even you know paying just 25 bucks, which is what it costs here a month. Nice. Um, it's a funny little aspect of human nature. <laughs> so if I give it to you free, they don't really use it. We charge people 25 <laughs> bucks a month for um, health care, and it's really good health care. Uh-huh. Um, and people use it all the time. Its usage rates almost doubled. It's kind of funny. Wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially with young men, um, huh. <laughs> young men in their 20s. Uh, so that was interesting, uh, but that was a key part, um, a commitment to providing uh, full coverage health insurance. Um, we just rolled that out to all domestic partners and their children, nice. no matter how many children you have. We have a 401k program with a 3% match. Um, we have home buying assistance programs, financial management assistance wow. programs. Uh, transportation cards, so the ORCA cards, anybody who wants to use the ORCA cards for public transportation around the Puget Sound region, and, you know, on and on and on. We have free food, but it's really healthy food. So mm-hmm. when, you're at, when you're at work, you're, all your meals are provided for. Um, and it's not garbage food. It's certainly not Google. Like, we don't have a full-time <laughs> kitchen staff. You're making your own food and you're doing your own dishes. But it's good food. It's, it's good, good, healthy, good healthy food. food yeah. Yeah. Um, good healthy food and then lots and lots of hot sauce. <laughs> the things that Tabasco we run or uh, all over. <laughs> My God, the Yucatan sunshine. Well, obviously sriracha is the base, but we go to Pace to the Yucatan sunshines, to the Aztec sunshines. Lots of Tabascos, <laughs> all the various flavors. You probably have 30, 40 different hot sauces. Wow! So lots That's of hot sauce. Sounds um, like my kind of place. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then taking care of a community, which is looking at the larger community, not just. Um, um, our local environment, but beyond that. So we've focused on reducing our, our resources, our resource use, our water use. Okay. Um, 
focused on reducing our electricity. So, for example, Sarah, my wife, runs the sustainability program. Our both facilities are now fully LED. Um, so we and it costs an enormous amount of money to do this. This is a quarter million dollar project to convert this wow. brewery into LED. Um, we partnered with the city on that. Uh, city used nice. to have a great program. Unfortunately, it sunsetted. Oh. Um, but we got our costs down to less than half of that. Um, but we reduced our, like, our electrical use by you know over seventy percent because we took out there was like three hundred and fifty fluorescent units um, and put in less than a hundred LED units, which are just phenomenally low power, uh, low voltage units. So um, we also have a partnership with a couple farmers over in Yakima. It's almost since the day we started for a six and a half acre organic farm. It's a demonstration farm oh, wow. to practice different methodologies of organic. Uh, hop farming hmm. and uh, planting and viability of different varieties. Um, that's called the Quitchy Canyon Farm. All the hops are exclusively ours, and we've been releasing our organic Quitchy Canyon hops uh, and fresh hop beers since the second year we were open. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, there's the whole organic hop project, um, and then we have our um, grain project. So working with Cascade OA- Grain, I think. Yeah. yeah. Just happened last weekend. Oh. Uh, How was it? It was phenomenal. It was great. Uh, record turnout again. Um, and this year, we started off with Oregon State and Washington State. We were the um, founding sponsor with King Arthur Flower. Mm. And the goal of this was to create local grain economies um, here in Washington State. Our focus was here mm. and down in Oregon. Um, and then a little bit up into BC because we all share a growth region mm-hmm. um, on the west side of the Cascades. We're all pretty much the same ecology as far as growing seasons are concerned. And the idea was to form these local economies between um, farmers and distillers, bakers, brewers, um, and then hopefully we would stimulate the creation of malting houses again. So you could have that virtuous cycle all here in this uh, economic zone or ecosystem that we have in the the, uh, Pacific Northwest where you would have local farmers growing heritage grains from Oregon State University Seed Library with Dr. Jones over there. And that library and the bread lab, um, those guys are world famous. It's one of the wow. uh, four most um, uh, productive barley growing regions in the world, um, over around Mount Van- Mount Vernon. Uh, they have the second largest barley seed library in the world. So it's a phenomenal resource to, for us to, to use. And that was kind of the impetus that we all coalesce uh, for us to coalesce around in this region. Um, Hopefully, we'd create the um, the economic impetus for uh, maltsters to start and get this economy going, and then we'd start using local grain and we'd start using local maltsters, and all nice. of a sudden, you have fewer transportation miles to get your, you know, beer uh, into the glass because the grain is just grown up here in you know Mount Vernon, processed right there too, shipped down to us, et cetera, et cetera. Create those local economies, not to supplant our wonderful suppliers that we have on a large scale because it's a small scale stuff but really just to create diversity and a much more uh, in our opinion uh, a much more secure and diverse economy which is I think a strong economy in that time um, now it's this is our sixth annual Cascadia Grains Conference Uh, we went from less than a hundred crazy people trying to do this (laughs) thing kind of talking to each other Um, we had over 500 almost 600 people uh, this last one we have now four different maltsters here in Washington State 
um, several down in Oregon. Um, we've sent people all over the United States. So wow. this economy is spreading all throughout the country. That's so cool. And we're about to contract our first um, heritage grain called Obsidian Malt mm-hmm. um, with a specific farmer uh, who's going to grow about an acre for us right now. Wow. Um, so we use somewhere between fourteen and 25,000 pounds of uh, this malt over next year. Now, of course, we can't use it right now because he's just going to put it in the ground. So we'll get to use that next year. Very, very cool. Um, but that's that's the vision and the dream. And that's part that third leg, if you will, of the sustainability stool um, is looking at your larger impact, um, not only with your own resource use, but what you can do with this podium. So that's we decided to use this opportunity as business owners, my wife and I, to advance some of the principles of sustainability and environmental stewardship that you know we've held in other careers. That's incredible. Um, that's a long answer. That's a, a wonderful a answer. Say. Yeah, and, and and I think it's it, it scratched the surface. It's a testament of of your durability in the marketplace, starting in a difficult environmental yeah. time and and progressing to today uh, and being an icon in the. Uh, in the city. Um, speaking of icons, I have to ask, what's the story with the police car? Oh, <laughs> the beer patrol? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Well, we needed a car um, <laughs> and uh, didn't really have any money um, <laughs> to spend on a car. So I got a hold of the uh, state of Washington's um, auction site, okay. which is a great site if anybody knows about it. Um, you can find all kinds of stuff the state auctions off. <laughs> okay. uh, they have a great deal on cars. You can get um, retired cruisers. Uh-huh. So it's a Ford Crown Victoria or the famous Crown Vic. Uh, and um, I bid on it on an auction. I got it for 1600 bucks, which was right in my um, budget zone. <laughs> I was going to go up to 1800 So had 200 to uh to spend on the car. And that was it. I brought this car back it was a beautiful car still is fun to drive Uh, horrible gas mileage unfortunately (laughs) um but we only drive it back and forth between the two breweries uh and then i was having a beer with some of our friends from the north precinct the seattle police department's north precinct who come to the brewery and hang out and um one of them and i think i'll keep his name anonymous uh to protect his culpability (laughs) um but uh also a great home brewer um suggested that we turn the Crown Vic into a police car and get it wrapped <laughs> like a police car, which I thought I was appalled. There's absolutely no way I'm going to do that. Drive around pretending, like looking like a police officer <laughs> wi- from a brewery. Like no way. Um, we're a target enough uh, as it is. So uh, he was really serious and talked to a bunch of the crew from North Precinct. Um, they came up with a bunch of designs, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, we kind of ran with it. And then Matt and I and James. Uh, who used to work here forever and ever and now is the head brewer at Rubens, um, started kicking ideas around and we came up with this, the various concepts of the Beer Patrol uh, and then got it wrapped. Um, so it says, you know, to uh, ferment and serve instead yeah. of to protect and serve. <laughs> it does not look like a Seattle Police uh, police Department cruise uh, car, uh, patrol car. It specifically was designed not to have that same color scheme. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't know that it looks almost exactly like a Snohomish oh. County <laughs> officer's car, uh, which I discovered the first day I got it back from getting it wrapped. Oh. I went. I was asked by a friend to come to a party. Oh. It was an ICE officer uh, who was being promoted up to Department of Homeland Security. 
and there was this party over in um, Queen Anne, and uh, there were just a ton of officers. There were FBI, ICE, uh, King County, Seattle, and I drive up uh, <laughs> in this, you know, make-believe look-alike cop car. <laughs> And all these officers are there. <laughs> so uh, I spent my time at the party, um, not only just getting to know some of the great folks there, the men and women um, serve in the Northwest to protect us, but uh, also taking a picture with almost everybody I could get <laughs> to take a picture with me in the car, um, telling them if I ever get pulled over in this, I'm going to pull out all these pictures. <laughs> and so I'm like, here's, here's four different agencies in this car. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's the beer patrol. It's a ton of fun. Um, honestly, we get a, a lot of attention for it. I've it. It was meant to be the full fullness of the story. It was meant to be the match to the Prius we have. Our sales vehicles are Priuses, and being a kid from the '70s, my you know great reference for cars is the Trans Am from uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, so our Prius is designed. Um, as the bandit, oh. right? And, but instead of a Trans Am, it's a Prius because it's Seattle, and the car is smoking. So Very that cool. together, they're smoking the bandit, and that's the Beer Patrol car. I love the Beer Patrol uh, vehicle. It's uh, incredible. Every time I actually go by the tasting room that you guys have in Fremont, mm-hmm. uh, it's typically parked outside. Yeah. And um, I've had a couple of friends that are in law enforcement, and one of the first oh, things yeah. that I enjoy doing is taking them to showing them the car. <laughs> and they always get a kick out of it. Yeah, it's um, pretty funny. On on the back of it is our Washington Beer Commission logo. If anyone knows, there's a big W. I'm a seven-year member of our wa- uh, Washington Beer Commission. Yeah. And... Uh, we also have our phone number on the side, which I, people think is funny. Um, it's our phone number at the brewery is four two zero two four zero seven or four twenty twenty four seven. It's funny to those of you who think that's funny, uh, <laughs> who get it. Um, but it's you know, in a for a beer emergency call, four twenty twenty four seven. Um, and we still get really funny calls. Uh, I'm sure people leave all kinds <laughs> of messages. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Tell me about you your go. your tasting room. It's an incredible. It's it's a commu- it's a community destination. I mean, mm-hmm. people gather. It's a gathering place for members of the community, both uh, near and far. And um, I've been um, there many times, and I've enjoyed many great uh, beers that you have made. Thank you. What um, what's the thought process when you design it? Because it is very comfortable. It's very homey. Uh, yet you have a lot of people that are served there. How do you how do you do that? Uh, the first tasting room was just inside the production space, um, so that was designed because we had no money uh, and we had <laughs> no space, so we had to serve people where I brewed. Um, so it was uh, to my ability to understand um, all the history, the brewing history we have here in Seattle. It was the first taproom only tasting room in Seattle. Wow. Um, everyone else was a brew pub if they served beer. Or they didn't serve beer on premise, one of the two. Um, but when I actually got to design you know, the first iteration of the tap room um, outside of the production space, uh, the concept was based on a couple values. One, there would be no bar, right? No actual bar you could sit at. Um, why? Because, in my opinion, bars are um, zones of exclusivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know that feeling of... You walk into a place where you walk into a place, there's a bartender, there are the 10 people who are sitting at the bar, and they've got the absolute focus. Yeah. And it's a, you just feel weird. You don't know what yeah. to do. You don't know where to go. You're always trying to get somebody's attention. Um, and there's just that uncertainty 
And to me, that lacks that inherent grace, I think, is important for me in building that was important for me in building out this space. It needs to be a gracious place where when somebody is a guest and they walk through those doors, um, they are treated with all the respect they're due. They've taken their time, energy, and made a choice to come here over all the other places they could go. I want to make sure that they're not uncomfortable. They're not confused. Um, they feel acknowledged when they walk in the door. And they feel equal to everybody. So bar, gone. Service uh, station, that's really the only thing we have. And the other idea is that bars are basically readouts of men. Um, mm. And being a man, I, you know, uh, I'm very familiar with the bar scene. <laughs> um, it's not a comfortable place for women to hang out. No. And I didn't want to have a place where it's just a bunch of men drinking. Um, yeah. I don't think that's unique, and I don't think the city needed it at the time. My concept was craft beer. Our space is about the community. Yeah. We're not a bar. I don't never sought and don't seek to be a bar. Um, we seek to be a place where people can come and have a chance to get a sense of who Fremont Brain is, our values, our people, and um, try our beers in that environment and be around people of like, um, you know, like values with at least for the beer preferences. <laughs> so it couldn't have a bar because uh, I wanted to invite all members of the community. Uh, I didn't want to do table service uh, because I wanted folks to own it. Mm. If I did table service, it would require uh, a whole different pricing structure and I'd probably have to have food and I don't do food, just make beer. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to have that experience essentially model off my background as a Texan um, where you know, you go to these old barbecue joints out in, you know, St. Somewhere in the middle of Texas, Central Texas, you walk up and the best ones have uh, nothing but just brisket. And if you get really lucky, you can get some white bread on the side. Uh, <laughs> Wonder bread, I should say. Uh, so you, you walk up and all they got is like brisket and you can get mild or spicy sauce and that's it. There's no table, no seat, no, maybe like a stump or so pulled over. But usually what, you're, what you do if you're smart is you pull out your cooler you bring your own drinks, you bring your own napkins, right? Wow. Everyone sits down, and it, as a result, it feels like a community gathering all the time because people just take ownership for that of that space instead of sitting down and passively expecting the server to manage and curate their experience. I didn't want a curated experience. I wanted the opposite. I wanted to give this space to people inside yes. the you know the walls of the, the space that we've opened up and really have our customers determine um, their own individual curation of that space. Wow. Um, and it's, um, we have no TVs. I don't nope. show any TV. I cannot stand TVs in public spaces. Uh, it's one of the most destructive and intrusive things that over the last 20 years that's destroyed civic culture, in my opinion. Um, Agreed. Why would you go to a cafe and want to look at a goddamn TV? Yeah. Or a bar and go look at a TV? Yeah. It's just ridiculous to me. Um, and I don't do Wi-Fi either because, uh, you know, you can go work at home or go to Starbucks. Yeah. But this is a place where you're going to be forced to sit next to somebody you don't know um, and actually do the sacred thing, which people have been doing with a glass of beer since the first beer was ever enjoyed, which is talking. Nice. I love that it. That was the beer garden. Um, so we allow kids. We allow dogs, Pets. ferrets, cats. Um, <laughs> we make soda at the brewery. It's all by scratch, 100% all fruit soda, um, really good sugar. And it's free, and it's only for children. Wow. Um, the idea there is that all the parents are coming, and they get free pretzels and free apples. Everybody does. Um, but the parents can enjoy the beer, and that is you know, their special thing. Kids need to be, feel special too, right? Um, so we make re it's really good soda. Um, nice. 
How do I try it? <laughs> you don't. <Okay. laughs> you have to be a kid. That's well, the thing. I, I am in my mind. <laughs> well, the same concept is, yeah, no marionettes, no immature adults, uh, no, no kids. Um, oh, I mean, only for kids. And part of that is, and I'm dead serious about it. Like, people every now and again get an argument with us. Like, they want to buy it and whatnot. Yeah. And we won't sell it. It's just not kids. the point. Kids can't have beer. Yep. Right? Exactly. Adults can't have soda. <laughs> it's it's that it, again it's that thing of making everybody feel uh as equal as possible we don't do special events yeah we don't ever close um for any special events um we've closed twice once for a fundraiser for then uh for jay Ensley, who was running for governor um and then once for my sister-in-law's uh wedding very cool. So I don't anticipate us closing again. <laughs> that's good news for yeah. all of us in so Seattle. That is the for private. Yeah, that is the that's the concept that informed the beer garden, and it's worked out. So it's it's a, been a fun place to be a part of um, over the last eight or nine years. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I personally, and I think a lot of people in our community uh, will say that we appreciate the thought that's gone into it because we truly enjoy spending time there and really getting a comfortable experience and and having a conversation with our friends and our families so we thank you appreciate it and thank you very much for doing it um one qu last question for you if you had to go back in time and do it over again what would you change if anything oh. uh good question i think any entrepreneur would share a couple Character traits um, among them would be never looking back. Okay. We're always looking forward. All right. That's good um, to know. <laughs> so looking back, uh, I don't have an easy answer for you. Well, how, um, how about let's look forward then? Uh, 25 years. I, I can give you one quick thing. Okay. Uh, I would change the investment um, dynamic or okay. the, the uh, investment world that I existed in when I started the brewery and have access to more institutional funding. Okay. Um, as much as I love my investors, um, you know, it, for a couple hundred thousand dollars to sell, and we bought some shares back, so we have m okay. more than, uh, we have, we've sold less than 40% now, or an outstanding share. But it's, it was still a frustrating part of the business sure. um, to not have access to any kind of institutional lending. Uh, and that's uh, definitely an impediment, I think, to the spirit of entre entrepreneurship yeah. here in this country. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think our banking culture is in any way different. Um, I would change, if anything, uh, the incentives that we provide our finance sector in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, we are absolutely disincentivized, uh, and the finance um, financial corporations are disincentivized from lending to entrepreneurs or small mm -hmm. businesses. They're incentivized from lending to those who don't need anything. That's the number one frustration if you talk to anybody who started or is starting a business. The federal government does a good job with um, the SBA. I will say I that. I was going to just go Plug there. for yeah. SBA. SBA. It's a wonderful program. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful program. Um, and it really focuses all of your attention when you have to sign your house <laughs> over to a loan. It does. Um, it really focuses. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. it does. Um, yeah. So we look back we could lastly look forward mm -hmm. 25 years from now Fremont Brewing is going to be in Fremont yes uh, wha yep. what, what's the future look like for for both you as well as your industry uh, well um, 
I'll make a little plug for I hope in the future we relieve private business of the burden of maintaining health care for our citizens. I think that's an injustice that's inexcusable on a moral level. Uh, it's unsustainable on a business level. Um, and I hope that in five years we have regained the political will to meet the future that is coming to us regardless of what we think. Um, it's an enormous burden for private business to essentially be the social safety net. Um, and I think that's just immoral. So I'd love to see that changed nice. in five years. For Fremont, uh, we just you know built this space. Uh, it's a l very large brewery um, here right on the border of Fremont and Ballard. Um, so uh, we are here. We're not going to be anywhere else. We're absolutely not moving. We built this space with a lot of room in front of us to um, plant our feet squarely and solidly right here. Uh, I hope that our city government um, changes and that they actually treat business as an ally, not as an enemy. This is a pretty horrid time to be a business in the city. Um, so I look forward to a more collaborative relationship with the city of Seattle, which doesn't exist right now. Um, but really, most importantly, uh, I look forward just to more beer. I look forward <laughs> to uh, more hop varieties. I look forward to improving as a brewer. Um, it's, you know, I still do a, all the recipes or 95% of all the recipes. Um, and one of the greatest things about the last nine years is no matter how much I think I've grown as a brewer and understood certain styles of beer, um, I still have those experiences on a weekly basis almost where I taste something or I talk to somebody and I have that the situation which for me is the most important and most exciting, which I think I have no idea how you did that. <laughs> I have no idea how you got that beer to taste like this. I don't really understand this part of the process. Um, and that's really exciting, and I hope five years from now, and I anticipate five years from now, um, I'll still have those experiences uh, on a weekly basis, and there'll be a lot to learn, um, and that we get to continue to share it with our customers. At the end of the day, we can make beer all day long, um, but it's just nothing unless somebody buys it. Yeah. So um, really, this uh, looking forward for the next five years, the best answer for that is I hope that people continue to embrace the journey um, and the beer that we offer them. Awesome. And are continually excited by it. So we are. Awesome. Thank yep. you, Matt, for joining us on Sound Conversations podcast. I You're really welcome. appreciate you taking the time from your busy day. And we look forward to drinking more beer with you at Fremont Brewing. Thank, Thank you, you very much. All right. Cheers. Because beer matters. <laughs> it does.